welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guess. And we're back at it again with more, more news to deliver, commentary, and humor, as always. And we wrap it up in a nice, neat package, and we call it a weekly roundup. And today is weekly roundup number 13. Today is April 16th, 2022, and as always, we have a ton of news to get to. And if you're new to the show, this is our way to keep you, in, keep you informed on domestic and international news around the world. But if you're already a fan of the show, if you've kind of been through this thing a few times, you already know what's in store, which is plenty of news, but also some funny things that we get to. This is kind of our chance to cut loose Outside of our regular episodes that are usually pretty informative and intense, this is our chance to kind of cut loose and be a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more fun. You get to see our humor and things like that. So let's get right into it. Let's jump into our first segment here. We're going to go to California, where the historic, historic California Reparations Task Force is meeting in San Francisco. So the state's appointed reparations task force met on Wednesday in person for the first time since its inaugural meeting last year. And the gathering at San Francisco's historic Third Baptist Church concluded the first two days of meetings with an emotional call to make reparations a reality. And in dramatic and in, in a dramatic vote last month, the task force split five to four to limit reparations to people who can show that they are descended from the enslaved or free black people in the U.S. as of the 19th century. Those who favor broader eligibility say lineage-based reparations unfairly shuts out black people who have suffered systemic discrimination. So, Adrian, uh, I think we may have talked about this at least a little bit, this this distinction you want to make between those who can prove their lineage here of having people in their family who have um, been descendant, descendants of slaves of American slavery or other free black people in the U S um, I kind of fall on the fence of where I think it has to be people um, who were descendants of slaves in this country, because we have a very, very unique experience. And I just, you know, not that I'm against helping those who are, you know, African-American from other countries who came after slavery uh, was abolished. I do think, though, those who were here from the very, very beginning, whose lineage has been, um, you know, strung out across the country, I do think those folks do deserve reparations in particular, um, not those who came from other countries because they had a very different experience. Um, Yes, they were discriminated against, but I think it's just, it's hard to say that they deserve the same, you know, reparation programs and resources and things as those who were descendants of slaves. I could, I could see that right there. Cause it's like, you know, Descendants of slaves versus like African migrants or Haitian migrants or, you know, people who are darker skin tone who just happen to migrate to the new land or to the Americas versus people who are on the ships and went through, you know, the slave trade and went through that. Um, it definitely is a distinction. Of course, both people were discriminated and marginalized for, you know, similar reasons, but 
Um, you know, it's going to be an interesting battle, listeners, uh, on how they kind of sort that out because, you know, I don't know how well ancestry and genealogy.com or those things are, but uh, I would definitely, if I were uh, African American in California, I'd be getting my uh, getting a membership in one of those so I could trace my lineage and uh, sign up for the money. But let's go to another story here, and this is a good story. We actually had Mark Morial from the National Urban League to start off season four with us, but they put out their State of Black America, their report. It's an annual report that they do. They released it where this year their equity index shows that black people still only get about 73.9% of the American pie that white people enjoy. While black people have made economic and health gains, they've slipped further behind whites in education, social justice, and uh, social justice and civic engagement since the index launched in 2005. A, com- a compendium, uh, sorry, uh, a compendium of several outcomes by race and many aspects of life. It shows just how hard it is for people of color to overcome systemic racism. The civil rights organization says the index also goes into a lot of other uh, factors, Devin, um, about uh, wealth gaps, home ownership gaps. Um, I didn't even realize this, but even people of color um, have a harder time getting home improvement loans. Um, life expectancy is lower. Uh, maternal mortality rates are unfortunately worse. Education, hate crimes, even voter registration. I definitely challenge you, our listeners, to go check that report out. It has a lot of interesting <laughs> numbers in there. Um, if you believe that um, systemic racism doesn't exist, you know, it's it, it does. There's there's definitely a lot of evidence um, that shows that we're behind the eight ball when it comes to, you know, enjoying the American dream. And unfortunately, it's not all about culture <laughs> or not all about lifestyle changes. Uh, but some of those are about what the system is doing uh, against us, Devin. You know, this is an interesting conversation because in a lot of ways, um, based on this report here by the National Urban League, I mean, like they've said, we have slipped backwards in in some er- some key areas, and, and that's not what you want to see. And I think it it kind of goes back to the conversation we had about black culture, right? Um, and that there are things that we need to work on. We're not saying that black culture is bad, but there are things that we are in control of that could help us get you know, make some progress in some of these areas when you're talking about, uh, you know, life expectancy, maternal mortality rates, education in particular. Um, Those are things that we are sort of in control, right? We can maybe reach back to the the generation coming behind us to make sure that we um, guide them in the proper ways. I mean, you know, in a lot, I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that the state of Black America is bad, but it's certainly we have work to do, and so we've made progress. But there are things that we can certainly work on, and we know that the right to vote is something that um, those on the right have made it their mission to restrict in a lot of states, and so we have to be vigilant about fighting that on not only at the state and federal level, but on a local level, because that is really where. These things really um, show their full force. Um, When you talk about voter registration laws being 
um, enacted in a bunch of you know red Republican states. I mean, look at what Stacey Abrams did in Georgia with voters. I mean, it took some time. Yeah, you know, she, it wasn't like an overnight project, but that's what it took. I mean, it's on the ground, grassroots efforts on the local level that blossomed from county to county to mm-hmm. county, and you know, transcended the entire state. I mean, it's yeah. that's it, what it, it takes, takes. It takes work. It takes a whole lot of work, and it's not as simple as showing up to someone's house three months before the election and saying, hey, I need you to vote for me. That's not going to work. That used to be the Democrats' playbook. It still is the Democrats' playbook. That's not going to work. And so Black people have to really, we have to organize and solidify ourselves as a group that works in unison rather than having a bunch of you know, one sh- shot off kind of views about things. We have to work in unison because we are, unfortunately, whether you wanted to admit it or not, we are what the third largest group here in the country, population wise, behind Hispanics and now behind um, white people. So we have to move in unison when we do things. And if we don't do that, then a lot of these things, when you talk about the wealth gap and home ownership and and education and, and, you know, voter registration gaps, these things will persist if we don't get together and work together to try to fix some of this. We can't completely depend on the federal government and the state, you know, state and local governments to do these things. We like we are just just now in 2022 talking about reparations. Reparations should have happened hundreds of years ago. But we are just now talking about just having commissions about it. So we have a very long way to go. So a lot of these things that could maybe help us get some progress in the community, we have to get together and figure out how we can control it and move the ball forward without necessarily having the help of a federal government or a state and local government. No, that's absolutely right. And unfortunately, one of the things it's going to take is some intervention because, you know, a lot of people don't know what they don't know as far as, you know, whether it be financial literacy, starting a business, going back to school, applying for grants and loans, or, you know, even, you know, you know, working remote, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, software development schools and different things where you might live in Mississippi, but work for a company in California or something. Mm-hmm. And that's why we've got to have, you know, community leaders. I and mean, we really need um, black, you know, entrepreneurs and black philanthropists and, you know, people who have money to invest in resources, not to just give handouts, but actually, uh, invest in communities to know to, so that people know how to better themselves. But here we are still talking. Yeah, still talking. But progress is, you know, from this, this, uh, report by the National Urban League, things are grim, but progress has been made. So we'll, we'll you know, we'll continue to fight. The fight isn't, will never probably be over. So. <laughs> We'll continue that. But we'll move on to our next story here, where President Biden is now calling for new measures to regulate untraceable homemade weapons called ghost guns. And the weapons are sometimes referred to as privately made firearms. Um, They're often purchased from kits. And these weapons do not have serial numbers, making them difficult to track and regulate. 
And in an announcement on Monday, USA, USA Today reported that the president said the new regulations would make clear that unassembled parts of the guns would still qualify as firearms, according to federal law. And commercial manufacturers of these kits will have to be licensed and must add serial, serial numbers on the kit's frame or receiver. And any entity who sells such kits must become licensed and will be required to run background checks on buyers before a sale. And the same must happen with commercially made firearms. And the new rules mandate that firearm dealers add a serial number to already assembled ghost guns that they come across. So, um, you know, Adrian, they're just, you know, trying to, to crack down on the number of guns that are available in this country. And we know um, this has been an issue from the very, it's going to continue to be an issue no matter what happens with the fourth amendment. Um, but now we have these ghost guns that are coming about. So they're just trying to respond to what is really a new age problem. Um, we'll see, I guess it remains to be seen if they'll have any success in really regulating these sort of ghost gun kits that are coming about. Hopefully so. Um, you know, these, you know, our, our gun legislation, I feel like, is, is very loose. You know, everyone's always talking about the right to bear arms and the need to protect themselves. And, and, and I just always go back to the fact that if we live in a society where everyone feels that they need a gun in their person, then we need to address some other issues. You know, there's, there's some safety, crime, mental health. There's got to be something else that we can be doing to make it to where people feel that they don't need to have a gun when they go mm-hmm. to the movies or go shopping. I mean, I just, I just don't understand why people feel that way. And again, if they do, it, that's, you know, that's a different set of policy that we need to start, <laughs> you know, addressing. But, oh, that's um, true. <laughs> we'll go to another story here. This is one that is crazy, uh, Devin. When I saw this, I was reading more about it, and it made me think like if we were ever in a position where we organized a protest and someone was disorderly, you know, we could be sued for that just, you know, based off of this precedent. So, listeners, this is what we're talking about. It stems from a lawsuit that a Baton Rouge police officer filed against Ray McKesson for a 2016 protest that McKesson organized against the police killing of Alton Sterling. An unknown perpetrator threw a piece of concrete at an officer who was identified as Officer John Doe in the court filing, striking him in the face and causing injuries to his teeth, jaw, brain, and head, and Doe is seeking damages. Well, in 2017, Judge Brian Jackson, who was appointed by President Obama, ruled that McKesson solely engaged in protected speech under the First Amendment as a peaceful protester could not be held responsible for the actions of a violent demonstrator. However, when the case was appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court, there were three judges uh, that were appointed. Excuse me. There were three of a five judge majority. Five of them were on the bench. It was a Republican majority. And with that Republican majority, they actually did something different where they said McKesson was liable for the perpetrator's attack on Officer Doe. The most recent March ruling by Louisiana Supreme Court uh, also said that uh, McCurry could be sued on Louisiana law. So like I said, Devin, that's a, you know, a bad story where someone organized a protest. Um, they weren't doing anything violent. They were peacefully protesting. 
but someone who attended the protest got hostile and violent. And because of that, the person who organized is going to get sued. It, like I said, to me, I, I get how, you know, like on a field trip, you know, there's liability if a student gets hurt because you organized a field trip or whatever. But, you know, to me, this isn't the same thing. It's like, I just organize a protest. I can't be responsible for every and anybody that just shows up to the protest. Right. I think this is a very slippery slope. I mean, it's where does this stop? I mean, how are you going to be responsible if you put together a protest and thousands of people show up? Are you then responsible for the behavior of all thousand people who are there? I mean, it sets a ridiculous precedent that you're supposed to be able to control all 1,000 people. Like, you don't know who threw that piece of concrete. And that's not something that, um, in this case, that McKesson was necessarily calling for. I mean, nobody was calling for throwing pieces of concrete at law enforcement. I mean, this was supposed to be a peaceful protest. So I think it's just, it creates a very slippery slope and you just don't know where this ends. And I think it's just part of a larger you know backlash or white lash honestly this is a white lash against the protesting that we saw that happened after george floyd this is just what's happening is this country is now saying oh we don't want to have what happened after george floyd we don't want that to happen again i understand that there are people who had businesses destroyed that had you know uh homes and apartments destroyed in minneapolis like things we did not want to happen, happened. Okay. These, these peaceful protests got out of control, but um, to set the precedent as high as if I go and set up a protest tomorrow and somebody comes and throws something, some object that the police, you know, a police officer and, and, and injures him, I'm going to get sued. Right. Like, wait a minute. Like, wait, what, where did that precedent come from? Like what happened? What about the January 6th supposed protest? Like the like, Capitol police officers sue the people who put that together. It's okay to be hit. You know, if you're protesting by, by vehicle and now it's okay to get sued. It's an all out assault on the fact of pizza protesting. That's not the right message. It's not what the country was founded on. And I just, I think it sends the wrong message. We don't want to discourage people from protesting. What we do want to send a message is that if you go to a peaceful protest and you try to turn it violent, you should be rep- you should be uh, reprimanded and you should get the proper punishment. But right. the, the story should, should be that they should be trying to figure out who unidentified perpetrator is. That's <laughs> like, that's, that's it. <laughs> that should be that's, the story. That's it. That I mean, that's, that's the only story. You cannot pin that solely on the person who put it together because you could say that the stop the still rally whoever put that together is responsible for capital police officers being killed mm-hmm. and injured and everything else that happened on that day but nobody on the right is calling for that nobody who passed these laws in florida who passed the law where you can drive through a protest on the highway because they're blocking traffic nobody Thinks, you know, it's just, it's, it's a wild time that we're in, but I'm not surprised because this is a white lash from what happened after George Floyd. It's, it's predictable in this country that this is always what happens. So this is, it's an assault on peaceful protesting. 
somebody made a you know a terrible decision in trying to injure a police officer. Nobody who plans a peaceful protest is saying we want to go injure police officers. That's not what's happening. So it just it sets a bad precedent. But we'll move on from there to go to our very last story here, where an HBCU grad has launched the first ever financial family reunion summit and plans to give away ten thousand dollars at the same time. So Ruby Taylor, who is the founder and CEO of Financial Joy School is pleased to announce the first annual Financial Family Reunion Summit. And that is going to be held on September 17th, which is three days before my birthday. Uh, She will be awarding one lucky family $10,000 to invest and build their own generational wealth. And they will also be provided with their very own certified financial planner. And so other opportunities to win investment cash will be offered as well. More families will have the chance to win $150, $500, $1,000, all the way up to $1,500 to begin their own investment journey. And to enter this giveaway, you just simply have to register and attend the event. And so the this event will be sponsored by Trust and Will, which is a free virtual summit and is open to all black and brown families from all walks of life with the objective to teach them how to close the racial wealth gap. So there you have it. It's called, it's hosted by the founder and CEO of Financial Joy School, and it's the first annual Financial Family Reunion Summit. Google it. Make sure you register. Attend it if you can. You may end up walking away with some investment money. So make sure you check that out. So we're going to go ahead and take our very first break. And when we come back, we're going to get into our second segment here. We have some international news for you, talking about inflation, talking about Elon Musk wanting to buy Twitter, apparently, in a, a ploy for free speech. And we'll have some more news for you in addition to all of that. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with other organizations? Maybe you'd like to advertise or even appear on our show. If so, go to our website, blackagendapod.com. Or while you're listening, click the donate link in the timestamps. Thank you for your support and your belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So let's get into our second segment here. So we do have a couple of quick updates for you. So first up, we want to mention to you that inflation, which is the monster, the boogeyman that everybody's talking about, inflation has soared over the past year at its fastest pace in more than 40 years. So the Labor Department said Tuesday that its consumer price index jumped 8.5% in March from 12 months earlier, which is the sharpest year-over-year increase since December 1981. And these price uh, increases have been driven by the bottleneck supply chains, uh, consumer demand, which is on the rise, and disruptions to the global food and energy markets that has been worsened by Russia's war against Ukraine. So inflation jumped 8.5% from last March. So, man, everything is getting more and it's just more expensive. Um, And then our second quick update here. 
We mentioned it before the break, but Twitter revealed in a securities filing on Thursday that Elon Musk has offered to buy the company outright for more than $43 billion, saying the social media platform needs to be transformed as a private company in order to build trust with its users. And Adrian, I have mixed feelings about this. You know, it just seems to become a pattern of billionaires buying up companies and controlling the information that we are all reading. You know, we all know that uh, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Um, Not really sure how to feel about it. Michael Bloomberg obviously has Bloomberg. Um, So this just seems to be more of a pattern where billionaires are controlling the information we're reading by just outright buying some of the, you know, platforms and, and, and sources that we all used to enjoy. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I, I almost, I, 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 I could, I don't have too much of an opinion just cause I, um, I do have an opinion, but I was going to say, I, I, I hope that one day we're eventually, we have our own media. I'm not going to say <laughs> we'll be a billionaire, but I am hopefully nobody comes by us. <laughs> right. Hopefully we're in a position where we're controlling media. Uh but yeah, we'll we'll see. That's a very interesting thing. I you know, I'm sure, you know, with it being Elon Musk, he's got more than enough money to buy uh Twitter. So if they're willing to sell, they're you know, he's gonna buy. Uh but um uh, we're gonna take you to another story here, listeners. This story here, I'm sure everyone has, you know, been tipped off by this story. Probably, uh, I saw it every, you know, time I was walking by our CNN TV at work, and you know, I kept, you know, getting captivated by it. This is about the Brooklyn subway suspect. Uh, he actually tipped off the police to his location. But to uh, give you some background, the man accused of shooting 10 people on a Brooklyn subway train was arrested Wednesday and charged with a federal terrorism offense after the suspect called police to come and get him. This is what law enforcement officials are reporting. Frank R. James, he's 62, was taken into custody about 30 hours after the violence on a rush hour train, which left people around the city on edge. In recent months, James railed in videos on his YouTube channel about racism and violence in the U.S. and about his struggles with mental health care in New York City. Police had urged the public to help find him, releasing his name and photo and even sending a cell phone alert before they got a tip on Wednesday. The tipster happened to be James calling to say he knew he was wanted and that police could find him at a McDonald's in Manhattan East Village neighborhood. And this is what two law enforcement officials have said. So like I said, Devin, that is a very interesting story. Um, you know, whenever you've got stuff like this and then you hear, you know, something about mental health in there, you just like, you know, it's one of those situations where you're just like, could this have been prevented, you know, if we were, you know, really addressing mental health in America, like we need to, I don't know, that's not, you know, a hypothesis or anything, but I'm just saying, anytime I see mental health in these situations where you've got, you know, shootings and things like violence, uh, it's just, I just understand there's a lot of psychology that goes into where people are crying out for help. Uh, and sometimes they act in these ways because they can't control themselves and, you know, do something productive, not, you know, trying to say he's got an excuse. But uh, I just hope that, you know, we can learn from this moment and we don't have, you know, more sort of shootouts on subways like this. 
Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely unfortunate. I think it highlights a problem that we have, which is dealing with mental health properly and identifying people who need help ahead of time before they do things like this. Not saying every person who has mental health issues would do this, but I think we definitely definitely can do better with providing the proper services to people who need help. I mean, he did have quite a few videos on YouTube, so. Um, we definitely, there's work to be done. I hate to see it. Uh, but hopefully this starts a conversation of just providing proper mental health services, um, will not be a negative in the long run. It can only help us with getting people to proper help and hopefully, um, heading off some of these problems before they become, you know, mass shooters or or they become, suicide you know it it can just spiral out of control so the only thing that there's only good i think that can come from us putting more resources and attention on mental health and making sure people have the services that they need um and so in this case it's a, it's it's a horrific tragedy that he did this um but hopefully this starts a conversation around us needing to pay more attention to people who are Exhibiting these sorts of things and make sure we get them the proper help before they turn into um, what he did. So just, you know, a tragedy there in Brooklyn, 10 people shot. But hopefully we can start to make some real progress towards um, heading off some of these problems. But we move on from that story. We're going to go to uh, a lawsuit here that alleges that a university targeted black and female students and trapped them in debt. And so a new lawsuit alleges that Walden University, which is an online for-profit institution, engaged in reverse redlining and they targeted minority communities and misrepresented their fees and the credits required for graduation. And so according to a report from the New York Times, one promise the university boasts is that its students can earn an advanced degree in 18 months. However, a new lawsuit from the National Student Defense Network charges that Walden University engaged in a scheme to lure black female students into their school and then kept them trapped in a debt cycle. And the lawsuit notes that one of Walden's main strategies was to stretch out the capstone project which forced students to re-enroll for another semester as they waited on decisions from a three-member panel. It is estimated that these costs exceeded $28 million um, in extra fees for school and loans and things like that. So, Adrian, um, you know, these for-profit institutions I really don't care for, particularly if they're online for-profit. I already think it's sort of predatory in the way that they operate. And this is just more evidence <laughs> how they operate. It's already very shady um, as it is. And so that the fact that they were targeting black female students, um, you know, just goes to show you and, and trapping them in this sort of debt cycle and, and extending the capstone project. I mean, the whole thing is just ridiculous. And hopefully I don't know if I should have read the, uh, I don't remember exactly from the story, but if they have federal student loans, they should be forgiven, you know, because this seems predatory on its face um, and something that we've seen from these online for-profit institutions. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that, I mean, me being in grad school and I, 
think about the fact that I picked Ball State because of the fact that I knew that I could complete it under a year for my MBA. Like that was the one thing that I I even called one of the advisors and I was like, before I um, apply for your program, I need to know, can I complete this program <laughs> within yep. a year? And she was like, yep, you know, you'll take this boom, boom. Here's a, you know, she even sent me an Excel schedule. So, you know, if I would have been lied to, you know, and been like, oops, well, actually, you know, we updated our <laughs> curriculum. <laughs> right. Or it's going to take two years instead of one or two and a half years. You know, it's right. like. I mean, you, you'd be pissed. And then not to mention the debt cycle. I mean, that's, I, I'm, you know, I, I'll be, I'll be very intrigued to see, you know, what happens out of this lawsuit. Um, you know, we'll, we'll definitely keep you in the loop listeners about it. Um, here's a poll that is very, very interesting. And honestly, whenever I think about it, there's certain elements. I don't even know where I feel on it, but it's a poll that talks about, uh, sex and race and rather sex and racism in schools and having the conversation about that. Americans are actually deeply divided over how children in K through 12 schools should be taught about racism and sexuality. According to a new poll, overall Americans lean slightly toward expanding, not cutting back discussions of racism and sexuality, but roughly four in 10 say the current approach is about right, including similar percentages across party lines. About four in 10 Republicans say teachers in local public schools discuss issues related to sexuality too much, while only about one in 10 say too little. Among Democrats, those numbers are reversed. In the meantime, a flurry of new state laws has been introduced meant to curtail teachings about racism and sexuality and to establish a parent's bill of rights that would champion curriculum transparency and allow parents to file complaints against teachers. You know, um, listeners, I'm sure there's a lot of thoughts and opinions out there uh, about this and it's it almost is reminiscent of you know Black Lives Matter and how you fuse racism and transgender rights, and it's like those should be two separate issues, just like racism and sexuality. Um, those should be two separate issues as far as how to teach those, um, because it's it's not the same to say that we should be you know that we should censor racism teaching the way we censor sexuality. I mean, because honestly, I think that we need to have racism teachings throughout, you know, K through 12, you know, right when kids are taught anything or they need to learn about these things so that we can kind of eradicate it. I can agree with sexuality, you know, maybe starting that later on, like third, fourth, fifth, sixth, closer to grades where kids are going through puberty so that you can pair that with some, you know, some knowledge so they can under start better understanding what's going on. Um, that's about the only thing I can think of. Cause I mean, I know that, you know, certain, I mean, certain ages, kids probably don't really need to be necessarily introduced to that. Maybe if they've got questions, make sure that, that you've got counselors, um, that kids can feel comfortable talking to. But again, two separate issues trying to talk about racism and sexuality, Devin. Right. I think, you know, in my opinion, I think one of those conversations, we have a lot more evidence to fall back on when we're teaching kids about these things, in particular race. Um, you know, I think we're just having a disagreement and argument over this, the history and story of this country. We understand that it's complicated. 
how we got here. And we don't know how to properly talk about it because our textbooks don't properly explain it. Um, And in a lot of places, the textbooks are not creating a proper picture for the next generation of how this country got to where it is and why a lot of African-American people have a problem with the way the country is currently set up and why we always, I wouldn't say always, but while we keep talking about systemic racism and racism and discrimination and the wealth gap and, you know, why we keep talking about those things. If you read our textbooks, you would, you would think like, what, what's going on? Because according to the textbooks, everything is fine after the sixties, after Martin Luther King came and after Malcolm came, we were fine. We got the civil rights bill passed. We got the, uh, you know, equal housing bill. That's not the exact name, but we got that passed. So according to the textbooks, after the 60s, things were good. And so the country is grappling with the fact that African-Americans are saying, well, hold on now. Yes, we got a lot of things passed in the 60s, but we still have a lot of work to do. And, and part of that is teaching the current generation the proper history of this country. Slaves did not enjoy slavery. It was not fought. The, the Civil War was not fought over states' rights. You know, or you can say it was fought over states' rights to have slaves. Like it was, it was not fought over just simply states' rights, and that's the conversations we're having. And then when you talk about sex, I mean that is a conversation where now we have states passing bills that are really solutions in search of problems. Like you have, you're passing a bill at the state level to outlaw four people from competing and women's sports who may be transgender. These are the conversations we're now having and putting on students and not just students, but teachers as well. So we're passing all these bills. And this is the problem we had when we talk about critical race theory and the flurry of states laws that came about. It's just like, what is going to be the end result? Because nobody really knows what critical race theory means, but we're passing bills trying to outlaw it. Um, So, it, it just, it worries me, but I, I do think there is some, you know, some good things that come out of this poll, which is that, you know, some people do see that there is work that needs to be done. So at the very least, some people acknowledge the fact that we have work to do. So right. I take solace in that part of this poll. While I don't agree with those four out of 10 Republicans, <laughs> You know, who say that the teachers discuss these things too much, but yeah, yeah, that's I disagree with that. Particularly <laughs> now, because it's like, you know, teachers are probably afraid that if they talk about it, just like, you know, the the, the above case with protest and they'll get sued. They you get know, sued. It's, it's, that's what that's what we've that's what we've done to our to our yeah. teachers, the point to the where parents feel that they don't like what you're teaching. Hey, just just go up and sue the teacher. I mean, it's just, it's just so, I mean, it's so ridiculous. And just to me that, I mean, I get like, yeah, if your teacher is like teaching something like, you know, Ouija boards and, you know, you know, they're teaching something about some other deity or whatever, but like, we're talking about racism in America. Like, again, I think that, you know, bundling these issues together is the wrong thing to talk about racism and sexuality in the same lens. Same. Because I get like, you know, 
kids that are, you know, K through three, you know, K through third grade, you know, maybe don't introduce them to a lot of sexuality talk just yet. But like I said, as they start to develop, get older, different hormones, all that stuff, we don't need to be a barbaric society where we don't start to have conversations about sex and sexuality because, you know, the whole thing about abstinence, I mean, yeah, that works for some people, but for a majority of people, they need education on what's going on so that you don't end up with you know, unwanted pregnancy, abortion, and STD. I mean, the list goes on and on. So, um, like I said, a huge advocate for it. We just need to make sure we structure it properly like everything else in America. <laughs> right. I think... Yes. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who feel as though we're talking about it too much and they would rather us just move on and act like we're a colorblind society who doesn't see race. We don't talk about it. That's just not going to happen. And so sex is the next kind of conversation now that we're talking about transgender students and how do we treat them when they come in, you know, when they want to participate in certain sports and things like that. Very early in the conversation, but to have, you know, states going and banning certain things, I think we're a little bit ahead of ourselves. Um, But, I mean, at least at the very at the very least, a portion of this country understands that these conversations are necessary in our schools. If we're going to properly teach the next generation about the history of this country um, and where we came from and how we got to where we are. So we'll move on from that. Needless to say, there's a lot to talk about with that particular uh, poll. And I think it just shows just how divided we are over a lot of these issues, as we should be. These are not easy issues. I don't think we should. It's not. I think we should have give some people some grace here. Like these things are not easy. (laughs) You know, race, you could say maybe folks should have have formed and moved on a little bit more than they should. But the sexual conversation as far as sexuality and students. We are just now getting into that. So lots more to do. But to wrap up this segment, we wanted to talk about and highlight here something that the city of Orlando is doing. And they recently announced the expansion of their summer youth employment program, which will provide summer internships to about 300 to 400 teenagers. And it'll give them a bank account and an income of about $14 an hour. And it'll give them financial literacy training. And this is according to the Orlando Sentinel. The students will be employed for the season in a variety a variety of jobs, including positions at summer camps, insurance companies, retail, and hospitality. So, Adrian, that's an awesome thing to see. We, we talked about it with uh, John Roman about what kind of drives crime, which is the fact that people are not connected to the community. And one of the ways you can be connected is by being employed. So I think this, you know, only good from can come from this with giving them particularly a bank account and financial literacy. Forget the job and the income, <laughs> just the fact that they're getting the the account and they're getting that financial literacy training that will pay off big time as they grow up and get out of high school and into college and get into their career. That financial literacy will follow them wherever they go. So I'm happy to see that, you know, in action. We need more programs like that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where um, good policy is everywhere. It's just about implementing it. Uh, and we are glad to see that Orlando is doing it. 
Maybe there will be the test guinea pig, you know, pilot program for something that can be a federal push. So we'll keep you in the loop on that, listeners, but we're going to give you another break. We still got some funny stuff to give you, so make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda Podcast. We appreciate your support and ask that you like and follow us on social media, as well as share our content with your network. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter using our handle at Black Agenda Pod. Again, our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into it here. Our funny stuff is our quick hits, as always. We love to talk about some good stuff here to make you laugh before we end our show. Uh, the first quick hit that we we're talking about is the TSA. So last time we talked about the TSA, they had a really funny Twitter account. This time they found something that was kind of funny on a traveler's person. Uh, they were at the uh, Boston airport and this traveler went through security check and was shocked to, well, the TSA rather was shocked to learn that his cane contained a sword. And it was, and I was just like, I didn't even realize we still had, you know, cane swords. I thought that was like, you know, the Kingsmen or something like back in the day or whatever. But uh, the TSA New England Twitter account tweeted this photo showing that the sword cane was brought in. Uh, and and obviously, I guess it was obvious. I mean, I, I don't, I, you know, the passenger, you know, from what the writer is saying, it's like, you know, if you put a cane through the metal detector, obviously it's going to go off. TSA said in a statement that the passenger had recently purchased the cane and had been unaware that it contained the sword until it was examined by security wow. personnel. The passenger turned the sword cane over to the Massachusetts State Police and was cleared to catch his flight to New York. So at least everything ended up going well for them. But I guess, listeners, if you ever go buying canes, um, you know, see if there's a handle. Maybe there's a sword in it. Maybe there's something that you need to make sure that the TSA doesn't confiscate. You know, that's pretty funny because, like, I couldn't imagine, like, my grandma has a cane. So I'm like, what would she have done if she went to the... You know, she went to the airport and they were like, oh, man, we need you to come over here so we can take the sword out of your cane. Like, <laughs> uh, that's pretty crazy. I don't know who he bought it from, but uh, that's wild that he had a, a cane inside of it, a sword inside of his cane. Sorry. Um, obviously, you can't take that on the plane. But we'll move on to our next quick hit. So my first one here is about a protester who tried to glue herself to the court during the Los Angeles Clippers and Minnesota Timberwolves game. So a woman protesting the mass killing of chickens tried to glue herself to a basketball court Tuesday during a playing game between the Timberwolves and the Clippers. And so while TNT announcers Kevin Harlan and Reggie Miller tried to figure out what was even going on, as personnel surrounded the protester near the baseline, uh, Reporter Ali LaForce said the interloper tried to glue herself to the floor and was resisting security. The protester left a white handprint on the hardwood, one photo showed, and the animal rights group Direct Action Everywhere confirmed the motive in a news relief and, in, uh, and identified the activist as Alicia Centur- Centurio. 
Um, so she tried to glue herself to the court. She was unsuccessful. Unfortunately, they did take her away, but she did leave behind a white handprint on the hardwood. Um, nevertheless, the game went on and the Clippers ended up losing to the Timberwolves in the playing game. But Adrian, I don't know. Gluing yourself to a basketball court is a new one for me. I've heard of a lot of, you know, interesting ways to protest the killing of animals and environmentalists and things like that. But gluing yourself to a basketball court is probably a first for me. <laughs> yeah, my my thought is that, you know, do, do they serve like a lot of chicken at this particular stadium? Is it like... <laughs> I, I was just, I'm just trying to connect it here. Like, like, like why protest uh, a basketball arena? Like, you know, a basketball game. Like, I'm just like, is it, is this like, like, does this like, they just sell way more chicken. They have to be like than any other place that she could have like went to protest. Like, <laughs> I don't I mean just, to laugh. But if you want to protest the mass killing of chickens, you could have glued yourself to like a Chick Fil A drive through. Yeah, so. where they actually have like a lot of like. <laughs> I, that's that's what I'm getting at here. I'm just like like why did she pick like maybe because she knew she was going to get a lot of exposure because I assume this was a, a probably game or something. I mean, was this like a, was this a play like? We're not, was this like a big game between the Timberwolves and the Clippers? I mean, it, yes, it's a playing game. The NBA season is over. So, yes, you're going to get more views than you probably would during the season. But it's still, it's like, I just, you know. I'm just trying to get her mode. I just wish I could get inside of Alicia uh, Alicia's head because I'm just like, I just don't get where she was going because I'm just like. <laughs> you knew you were going to be stopped because it's like a, it's a big game. They just don't let anybody come on the floor. You no, should have a pass to get on the floor, or whatever. And then she tried to glue herself to the court. I just, I don't know. I haven't seen the picture of her leaving. She the probably had gorilla line, glue. Oh man, if she had some gorilla glue, they'd be still trying to get her off off the court. <laughs> uh, Obviously, they didn't have a hard time. I mean, they must have gotten rid of her pretty quickly. But yeah, she she uh, probably didn't she probably didn't get very far. But you know, Gorilla Glue should sponsor her next time. That's right. But hey, that's a um, you know. Uh, I guess speaking of sponsors, that, that kind of takes me into uh, another little quick hit. So this one's not as funny. This one's one of the ones that like gets you some money. We haven't hadn't found one of these stories in a while. So when I saw it, I was like, you know. Somebody probably out there needs some money. That's probably why um, this one popped up in, into my uh, uh, inventory here. But uh, this is about uh, if you like true crime videos, this one's right up your alley. Uh, a streaming service dedicated to true crime stories is offering somebody $2,400 to watch 24 hours of documentaries and report on the experience. Magellan TV says its third annual true crime watch stream job, which allows similar offers made in 2020 and 2021, will pay 2400 and a free year subscription to a winning candidate who watches 24 hours of true crime documentaries in a 48-hour period and documents experience on social media. Quote, our ideal candidate lives for true crime. They can handle the most menacing serial killers, the goriest details, and don't flinch at the chilling paranormal, uh, the streaming service says on his website. 
Documentaries to be watched by the selected candidate include episodes of The Murder Maps, Lady Killers, Ten Steps to Murder, Nurses Who Kill, Murder on the... <laughs> I was just... I was trying not to laugh, listeners. My bad. But it's just like everything's got murder, killing... I was just like, jeez. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I didn't even think this was going to be that funny, but it's like... It was the nurses who killed. <laughs> yeah, that one... I like, I mean, 10 Steps to Murder. Like, I mean, that one, that one's just very... It's just... That, that was produced by OJ. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> But you know you're gonna be watching the um, oh. nurses who kill, uh, murder on the internet, 21st century murder and cyber crimes with Bill Hammersley. So it's just so basically you, you're just gonna watch. It, it doesn't even mean to say true crime. I mean because I thought some of those are more thriller stuff, but it's just murder stuff. So um, you got until Monday, listeners, to put an application in here. You got to get it in by April 18th. So. If you like watching a lot of murder stuff, um, this is this is your dream job. <laughs> Ten steps to murder <laughs> by author O.J. Simpson. Um, <laughs> the nurses who kill is the one that did it for me. Yeah, the nurses it's who kill. Well, on to our next quick hit. No killing involved here. Um, just a lot of money involved, <laughs> but a company has settled dog leasing allegations for more than $900,000. So let's just um, bear with me here. But a California-based finance company has agreed to pay more than $900,000 to settle allegations that it illegally was leasing dogs in Massachusetts and this is according to the state's attorney general's office. So as part of the agreement entered in Suffolk, Suffolk County Superior Court on Wednesday, Monterey Financial Services LOC will stop collecting on active leases and cancel <clears throat> about $700,000 in outstanding consumer debt on 211 dog leases, which is about $3,300 owed per lease. And they would transfer full ownership of the dogs to Massachusetts residents. The company will also provide $175,000 restitution to consumers and pay $50,000 to the state. Leasing dogs is illegal in Massachusetts, in case you didn't know. And it can often be an expensive way to own a pet because of the the high finance charges, according to the attorney general. Authorities had alleged that the Oceanside, California firm violated Massachusetts consumer protection laws by purchasing and collecting on leases for dogs and engaged in illegal practices to con- to collect outstanding balances on those leases. So news to me, Adrian, I had no idea that you could actually lease a dog Like you could rent it like you rent a sofa in your in your living room. <laughs> you can lease a dog, apparently. And this company here, uh, $900,000 worth of leases, or at least they're going to have to settle this for $900,000, which is pretty wild to me that they had that much in consumer debt standing out for dog leases. I did not know this was a thing. Um, 
not interested in doing it, obviously, because it's so expensive. But, you know, if you're interested in a pet outside of the state of Massachusetts, maybe you can lease a dog. I mean, I I just, like, I remember whenever I got my Great Dane, like, my first Great Dane, uh, my ex, he paid about, like, $1,200 for it, just right, you know, right out 1200 bucks. Right. And I'm just like, you know, maybe you, you break that up into four interest-free payments, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> that just sounds wrong. You don't, you don't need to lease it. I mean, I don't. I don't need to like you know rent to own you or whatever. Like I just like <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> I don't know, lease my dog. I just want to own my dog. I just right. I mean, yeah. So I'm just like like I said. You can get like if it's if it's over a thousand dollars. You know, you know, I'll give you. You know, give me some break it up into payments. You know, whatever. I can understand that, but. Um, it sounds like they weren't doing, you know, for interest free payments. Uh, they were doing something a little more shady, maybe here. Like uh, paying for the dog world. That's it. That's it. This one's another. This is somebody who's doing something shady. I didn't realize you could, you know, make so much money off for uh, golf carts, but this Florida man figured out how to do that. Uh, Florida man linked to dozens of motorized golf cart thefts in the upper Midwest was sentenced Tuesday to two years in federal prison. The FBI began investigating Nathan Rodney Nelson in July 2019 after the Cass County Sheriff's Office in Fargo, North Dakota, asked for help in solving a series of golf cart thefts starting in 2017 in the Dakotas, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. So this guy was... I mean, that's a, it's a pretty expensive, you know, little stretch to go uh, still in golf carts. Uh, Nelson, a former Minnesota resident living in uh, Apollo Beach, Florida, was eventually arrested in June 2020 while he was caught trying to steal golf carts from a dealer in Donaldsville, Georgia. <laughs> the guy's like, oh, he's just moving around the whole country still in golf carts. <laughs> he also was carrying pre-printed serial number labels and burglary tools, according to court documents. Investigators said he stole at least 63 golf carts in seven states worth at least $283,500. Nelson would typically steal carts in pairs from rural Midwestern golf courses, usually at night. He stole, <laughs> he sold most of the carts under the alias Mason Weber at a cost of about 2500 each court documents show. I mean, this guy was like, I just, there's so much effort to just get away with this. Like, you know, moving, going throughout seven states, waiting to the night, you know, when the <laughs> golf course is closed, nobody's out there to, you know, slip up and steal some golf carts. And then you just go to another state, another city. <laughs> <laughs> just you better lock your golf carts up if you have any. Because <laughs> uh, apparently there's an underground <laughs> golf cart. I know. It's like, who knew? That was, that's like a, a hot commodity for stolen golf carts. I mean. Who knew? That's- I mean, as hard as it is to get around Muncie, maybe I need to hit Mason Weber up. You should you should have, man. You could have been rolling four wheels, man. <laughs> but hey, I don't I don't have twenty five hundred. I'm like if you I'm like if this is hot, you need to you need to you know, Well, I mean he's he's got, got a, lot of, a discount. He's got a lot of heat on him, so he's probably trying to get rid of it. <laughs> That's right. Probably let him go for the low low. 
Oh my god. Golf carts. Who knew the golf cart underground, man? Who knew? Um we'll move on to our next quick hit. Uh, to wrap up our quick hits here. <clears throat> so activists, we're going to end it on kind of a positive note, but anti-war activists have engaged in a light beam battle against Russian diplomats in Washington, Washington DC Wednesday evening in a display of a disapproval over the country's ongoing war with Ukraine. So these anti-war activists spent hours uh, projecting the Ukrainian flag on the Russian embassy's exterior walls with the ultra-bright light, Benjamin Weitz, who is a senior fellow at the Birking Institute and one of the lead demonstrators, said the group was protesting Rus- Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the killing of Ukrainian people. Uh, Witz said the Russian embassy, which sits about three miles northwest of the White House, has been an enticing target for some time. It's a large white building with windows running from top to bottom in slim columns. He recalled looking at the embassy and thinking to himself, quote, it looks like a big projection projection screen. And that's exactly what they're using it for, because now they're projecting the Ukrainian flag on the Russian embassy here in the United States. Um, Adrian, I think it's just, you know, symbolic of the attitude that a lot of people have towards the country of Russia and what they are doing and those uh, what Vladimir Putin has decided to do in Ukraine. Um, it's not going well. And I think you're going to see more things like this as the war kind of drags on and Russia continues to suffer um, huge losses, not only with soldiers, but also, you know, equipment wise militarily, they're not doing well. Um, I think, you know, we talked about this at the beginning, but the Ukraine war is one, one war where they decide the good and bad sides are very clearly the lines are drawn. Everybody knows Russia is on the bad side of this thing. And as long as this keeps dragging on and they cannot, you know, complete their objectives and their goals, uh, this is going to get worse for Russia. This is just a start. It's going to start with a projection on the building. The next thing, you know, we could be expelling Russian diplomats out of this country. And I don't mean to end it on a very serious note here in, in our quick hits, but I think it's it's just symbolic of a larger attitude that people have towards Russia for what they're doing in Ukraine. Yeah, as it should be. Um, they are, well, not they, but Putin is, is doing some awful things. Yeah. Uh, of course, his military is following his command, so they're part of it as well. But um, yeah, I hope that we get some resolution. Just like all good things, um, you know, or rather just like things like this, they just need to end on a good note um, to make sure that we can get some diplomacy and some res- some resolution for the people there. But listeners, what we're going to do, uh, we're going to wrap up this quick hit segment and we're going to give you another break. But we're not going to end our show. we got to make sure we give you a preview into what's coming up. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to the Black Agenda podcast. If you're enjoying the show, let us know. Before you go, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give a few dollars while you're at it. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. So sit back and listen well as we get back into this show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So let's go ahead and wrap up the show for you and give you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the show. So first up, you can look forward to hearing me and Adrian this Tuesday, April 19th, 
Horror. That'll be our next regular episode. And this time we're going to be talking about the Black Lives Matter organization. So there was some recent news about a house, lots of money that was involved in purchasing this home. Um, And so the Black Lives Matter Global Foundation is under a humongous microscope right now. And it's they've really been under a microscope since what happened to George Floyd. And so we're going to dive into and give you another update on the Black Lives Matter organization and just kind of give you an idea of where things stand. We did an update about a couple of years ago. So we think it's time that we revisit this conversation and talk about what has happened in particular since what happened to George Floyd. So we're going to be talking about that on Tuesday, April 19th. So make sure you tune in for that episode. And then after that, on on Saturday, April 23rd, we will be right back here, me and Adrian, right back here for weekly roundup number 14. So make sure you tune in for that. That's our chance to bring you more news, more quick hits, more funny, uh, serious, but also international news. We kind of bring it all to you here in a nice, neat package. And that'll be weekly roundup number 14 that you can hear us on April 23rd. That is a Saturday. We'll be right back here. So you got Tuesday, April 19th. That'll be our Black Lives Matter update. And then on Saturday, April 23rd, that'll be weekly roundup number 14. So make sure you tune in for both of those episodes next week. Plenty coming to you. Uh, The other thing you can do in lieu of listening to our episodes and downloading the podcast is is that you can actually help us out by donating some cash to the show. So Age is going to let you know how you can help us out. Yeah, listeners, um, one of the things about helping us out, we are not like Black Lives Matter. So uh, you know that if you help us Shots out. That's fired. <laughs> <laughs> I figured since you know that was you know that was some low lying fruit or low low hanging fruit right there, I had to kind of uh, jump out for that one. But on a real note, listeners, you, you know the drill here. You know what we're doing. Um, you, you, you're, you, you're listening to us until the end. So obviously you believe in what we're doing. Um, and we just ask that you, you know, believe a little bit harder or rather turn your belief into a monetary amount. Um, because this is what we need to take it to the next level. Um, Devin and I, we have a lot of planning meetings about where we're taking the black agenda <clears throat> and we can't take the uh, black agenda anywhere without having money. Um, even with doing just the podcasts and things of that nature, it takes money to do that. So we definitely need your help. All you have to do is go to our website, blackagendapod.com, or while you're listening, click on the donate tab in the timestamps. When you get there, you'll go to our patron page and you'll be able to donate on a monthly level and you'll even get some stuff back from Devin and myself. So make sure you do that. Like I said, it's just blackagendapie.com or in the timestamps, click the donate tab and start giving. The other thing that we like to talk about, and it's even nice that in our news segment, we were talking about financial literacy because again, remember April is financial literacy awareness month. And for the month of April, we're talking about Operation Hope. Their goal is financial dignity and inclusion. They work with young people and adults with financial tools and education to secure a better future. Since 1992, they have been turning America from civil rights to civil rights, making it their mission to produce free enterprise and capitalism 
and to address the work and the need for the underserved. So really cool organization helping with personal aspirations and life challenges. So like I said, it's called Operation Hope. Go check them out. Exactly. So make sure you check out Operation Hope as well as the Black Agenda Podcast. We will both appreciate any giving that you do here. And don't forget, any giving that you do do can help you out in your taxes next year. So there's some there's, there's some benefits here to donating to the Black Agenda Podcast we want to make you aware of as tax day is this upcoming Monday. So if you haven't filed your taxes, you should probably get on it. Um, today is Saturday. So get with it. So you got a couple of days left. But before we go, we also want to let you know you can keep up with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Black Agenda Pod is our handle. And again, that's at Black Agenda Pod. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, so make sure you follow us there to keep up with us when we're not here on the Black Agenda, giving you some facts and funny news and some international news. The other way you can keep up with us is you can go to our website, which is blackagendapod.com. And if you go to blackagendapod.com forward slash news, you will actually find some articles written by interns that we have here at the Black Agenda Podcast. And so this is new for us. We're rolling this out this season, uh, season four. We have interns who are writing articles for us. So if you can, go to blackagendapod.com forward slash news and read through our articles and leave some feedback for our interns. They're all very talented and they're writing, writing about some very important topics. So any feedback that you give will be, you know, ex- uh, appreciated by our interns and us here by both me and Adrian. So make sure you check that out. Blackagendapod.com forward slash news. You can read all of the articles here um, that our interns have written. So again, for me and Adrian, we thank you for staying with us and we will be back on Tuesday, April 19th for a, an update about the black lives matter organization. And then after that, we'll be back right back here Wednesday, uh, Sorry, Saturday, not Wednesday, Saturday, April 23rd um, for weekly roundup number 14. Don't want to throw you off here. Tuesday, April 19th is our next regular episode, Black Lives Matter update. And then Saturday, uh, April 23rd for weekly roundup number 14. We'll be right back here. So until then, we thank you for sticking with us for weekly roundup number 13. We'll catch you next time. 